0: I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup.
1: Hello and welcome to a Six Nations edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup, with new Ulster games to look back at or forward to. We're all on international duty, but we promise to do it all through white and red lenses. that could mean English, but it not mean Ulster. I'm Gareth Hanna and with me this week are Jonathan Bradley. Hello. Hi, Ari. I'm Michael Sadler. Hello. We'll discuss Ireland's defeat to England, look ahead to the Scotland match and back at Ulster we have a new signing to welcome in um, as well as plenty of your listener questions, the Club Senior Cup Final and the Schools Cup. Lots to get through but let's start at Aviva Stadium last Saturday Um, and we'll kick things off with a listener question that came in from Peter Gray. Obviously, I'm sure you all know Uh, Ireland were beaten by England, I know. Shocking it was. Peter Gray wants to know, did Ireland underestimate England in that match, John?
0: I don't know if you can say Ireland underestimated England. Um, I think certainly we all did. Yeah. Um, If we're going to backtrack on the uh, opinions early, but the, uh, the thing really was, England came in with a different game plan than what they played and Ireland didn't have an answer for it. I don't think that it was a case of the Ireland players thinking that um, they were just going to turn up and beat England. I just don't think they had any answers for what was a different and hugely
1: effective game plan from England. It was a bit strange, Michael, going into the game that Ireland went into a game against England as like heavy favourites. I think they were three to one on with the bookies or it was something. An, it was, an eight
0: point spread,
1: yeah. Yeah, it was uh, bizarre. Do you think that worked against them in any way?
2: No, I don't. Really, I don't really think so. I think um, I would agree with Jonathan. I think that basically they simply weren't prepared and weren't able to handle what was thrown at them. Which, let's face it, was a combination of things. It wasn't just that uh, England steamrolled them, that they did. They also played very intelligent rugby as well, with kicking balls and also high balls. Um, Ireland had no answer to what England and Eddie Jones and his think tank had sat down to do, which was have a very, very, very serious think about how they were going to approach this game. And they were going to press all the buttons they could I, I would think England were probably quite surprised that it worked as effectively as it did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I don't think in, in any way that, uh, that, that, that Ireland were, if you like, seduced by any notion that mm-hmm. all they had to do was turn up. Undoubtedly they thought they were going to win, but they had absolutely no idea, and you could clearly see that, what had hit them. I mean, basically from the word go, they had no idea what was coming next. What uh, impressed
1: you most about, about England's performance then?
0: I think, like, I'm glad you asked that question because you come away from a game like that and if you're looking at it completely dispassionately, taken away from the fact that you're covering Ireland and not England, so you're going to have to write about the deficiencies in Ireland, it was an unbelievable performance from England. Mm-hmm. Like, if it wasn't from England, it was great to watch, <laughs> you know. If you think back... Just pretend to,
1: there's white shirts or yeah, if you Ulster.
0: If you think back to England under Eddie Jones, as much as they had a nine-game winning streak Mm -hmm. in this championship when he first came in that is by far the best they've played they were absolutely brilliant to see a team like that in full flow the main difference for me is or was the presence of the Vunapola brothers and Manny Tuolaghi so you looked at that Mm -hmm. team as Michael said you looked at that England team and for the first time in ages you were like that makes abundant sense like, there's nothing you could pick holes in. You were looking at it, and you maybe would have thought Mike Brown could come in to counteract Conor Murray's and Johnny Sexton's kicking ability. But having watched the game, England came up with another way to negate what is normally Ireland's biggest strength in the box kicking of Conor Murray by using blockers or as we've now heard them called <laughs> escorts to shepherd away the Ireland kick chase so that it didn't exist basically. So that neg- negated the need for Brown and what you had at Daly it was a better footballer and somebody who could kick. So you had a 10, a 12, sorry, a 10, a 13 and a 15 who all, ki- who all can kick, all kicked well and that just sparked all sorts of panic in Ireland's back three. Like, that is as unsure a performance from a back three mm-hmm. as we've seen from Ireland in a heck of a long time as well.
1: Sam, you mentioned it. Escorts. We're mm-hmm. seeing a new um, vocabulary of uh, rugby journalism creeping in over the weekend. I think Donald tweeted you about something else. What was that? Uh,
0: the, the double, The double pivot.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh no! Well, it was, anyway, it, was yeah. it was
0: the ten twelve axis, and he wanted to know oh, yeah. when axis Access. had become mm. um, common parlance. But I think that goes back to when we. I think that goes back to just seeing ten twelve playmakers, which I think Gaz was pointed out. You know, you could take that back to two thousand three. I think, or <laughs> so yeah. it's not that new. But uh, it's one of those things that um, I think. Sometimes it does annoy people, and this is obviously annoyed, don't know. But if you're writing something that's 900, 1100 words long, you need new words to make
2: yes. sense. That's the, no n- excuse.
0: That's exactly, <laughs> no ex- exactly. Like you need just different. Seasoned professionals, resort you, yourself, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like when you're talking about a player in normal conversation, you wouldn't like start with his name, then his position, then his age. Then wherever he's from, followed by native. It's you know you, you gotta just mm-hmm. uh, you gotta change up the language, otherwise. Uh, it gets so is forward. this
1: escorts here to stay? In? What, what, what,
2: where did oh, you I see I this? You know. I've seen didn't? it in several places, <clears throat> referred to as escorts. i know, no It makes me feel a, a bit dirty. Why don't you just call it screening or something?
1: Like that? <laughs> sounds <laughs> better, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, the yeah. other one that uh, was in all the stats that we were reading after the match mm-hmm. is that England had forty-eight dominant tackles to only eight by Ireland now on behalf of myself and most of the casual rugby supporting public what exactly is a dominant tackle
0: I think this was like because in the Aviva Stadium you have the monitors um, in the desk so like between where me and Michael sits there's a little <coughs> TV monitor that gives you what was it ITV's coverage Um mm-hmm. Yeah, on Saturday. So you could see this stats whenever they flash the stats up on the screen about dominant tackles, which is a new addition. But it basically means a tackle where the ball carrier does not make further grind or loses grind. Um, but it's obviously become the new stat that everybody loves because if you looked at the rest of that stat sheet in terms of possession, possession, penalty count, tackles, meters made, any and all number of wonderful stats without watching that game, you would have thought that Ireland won because Ireland got the edge in so many statistical categories. Then you get the dominant tackles, 48 to 8. And that, in a lot of ways, was the story of the game because John Mitchell, um, I can't remember whether he said this before our podcast or not, whether we actually talked about it or not, but this idea that Ireland were going to bore the proverbial out of um, England no, in order just to win after the game. The
1: polka, I think it's the day after.
0: Um, so he obviously became a figure that an awful lot of people were talking about. But his defensive plan um, of making two man tackles every time, then using the line speed from the physicality that you get from having a centre like Manny Tealagi he really was able to one, make those dominant tackles that were burying Ireland behind the game line, which ruined their attacking shape. So we didn't see any of the didn't see any of the switch plays, we didn't see any of the loop moves that we're used to from Sexton. And then the line speed and the pressure that was put on Ireland's first receivers meant that one, the big ball carriers that we normally see work a bit of space, whether that be James Ryan, whether that be Tig Furlong, whether that be Kane Healy were not making grind after the tackles, hence the dominant tackles. But also like we saw more loose passes from Connor Murray and Johnny Sexton than I think I can ever remember seeing in the same game. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about a half back mm-hmm. pairing, that was their fiftieth test together. And that was possibly as unsettled
2: as they've as they've looked, I think. It is true of course Connor Murray hadn't played for quite some time mm-hmm. in yeah, Sexton, but true. even so they should have got into the groove. You saw some of the stats as well. Some You mentioned the big carriers like James Ryan who was making, say something like 13 carriers I think it was and only made something like 10 metres yeah. or it might have been the other way around. So minimal and that that is just incredible that you don't see that. And it wasn't just the, the double teaming either. If you remember Courtney Law shooting up and burying Gary Ringrose which I think possibly ended his game. Tua Lagi also did a one-on-one I think with Aki which sort of scythed him down. So they were also doing it in the, in the more traditional way by shooting up on one-on-one but they also were a lot of those dominant tackle stats would have come from the double teaming that they were doing and driving mm-hmm. the ball carrier uh, you know in reverse
0: the thing is that if you want save saving grace from this mm-hmm. I don't think that there's any other team in the world with the exception of the All Blacks that can play like that because I don't think any other team has the blend of power pace and physicality that England get when you have Itoji, Oliver Ola Funapola, yeah. Tualagi, <laughs> all in the same team. I suppose yeah. the only
2: concern conservative South Africa might be able yes. to do it once they've assembled their most powerful mm. team and I've no doubt, I think the point has already been made, Razi Erasmus will have seen that and gone, that's interesting. Yeah. They could, they could come up against each other, I think it's a quarter quarterfinals. Quarter yeah. And you could see that there might be a plan formulated there because they would perhaps have maybe not quite just those dominant figures but they do have the power once they've assembled their best, uh, their best 15 like, okay.
1: you're, you're edging on to it so let's just oh, do yeah. it anyway <clears throat> what sort of significance could that result the performance as you've mentioned the way England got hmm. got the better of Ireland hmm. what significance could that have leading up to the World Cup and as you say the eyes of World Rugby having now seen well, it
2: a lot of people have been suggesting that that's maybe no bad thing it's a reality check that they've come back down to earth all this sort of stuff and uh, that it's not just going to be a procession but I think it's much more worrying, I would, I would be slightly more oh, I'd be pessimistic, Pessimism, <laughs> I'd be much more pessimistic because it's one thing losing to England, that's fine, but to be obliterated like that mm-hmm. is I think a very, very worrying thing, uh, no matter when it comes, but this far out from the World Cup, um, I think it's an extremely worrying development. I think you looked at that team, their leaders were missing in action. Their key players were missing in action. It was a phenomenal performance by England, this is true, and not many other sides, absolutely right in saying, can replicate that. But it happened and they were absolutely annihilated and that is, to me, um, a very big worry. And I'd imagine, no matter what they're saying, that this will have had a huge impact and effect Mm -hmm. on squad confidence and on, on, on the entire Structure moving forward. I mean, they may well beat Scotland. Fine, they should beat Scotland. They should beat Italy, and so on and so forth. And maybe against Wales, be the next one because we assume France will bring more comedy, presumably to, to the game. <laughs> Have what? to work out whether they know who's captain at any. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but to be so taken apart at this stage, um, or is is I think a, a very worrying thing. I think is is, is that was more than sounding alarm bells. I think that's very worrying because so many aspects to Ireland's game just were not visible there, including mm-hmm. players. Nothing was visible. that—that mm-hmm. that, I, I, I don't know you'd agree with me or not, but I'd be very worried about the, the nature of, of how that defeat came about.
0: Yeah, because it's so comprehensive. <coughs> yeah. What you have is, for the first time, I think possibly ever, you have somebody providing a blueprint of how to beat Joe Schmidt's Ireland because if you go back to... Argentina in 2015, which is really the other defeat, the only defeat that really rivals it in terms of just gut-punch disappointing, then yes, he had the idea that you can get to Ireland out wide, and that persisted for a little while, but that wasn't the main um, reason really for the loss. The main reason for that loss was Ireland's most important players were all injured at the same time. So there was that. In 2016 and 17 Six Nations, you had a team in transition. But this is the first time where you would have watched a game and thought that game went that way because the opposition coach mm-hmm. had a better game plan than Joe Schmidt had for Ireland. Mm-hmm. And that's the lingering hangover that there is now a way for people to look at and see when Ireland have near enough their best players available that's the way that we can beat them now as I say there's not an awful lot of teams that have the Mm -hmm. raw resources to do it but it now exists and before Saturday it didn't and that will persist Mm
1: -hmm.
0: no matter whether Ireland go and win their next four games or not yeah
1: so let's talk a little bit more about, about Ireland's game then. Obviously the big uh, yes. selection um, talking point and uh, probably continued to be so after the game. The Robbie Henshaw experiment at fullback
2: um didn't work? Uh, no, <coughs> it didn't work. Um, England had his number. In fairness to him, it was going to be very difficult for him because with Ireland um, tending to defend so high he was having to do cover everything and that's probably where Rob Carney, I mean, Rob Carney do mention so much. It shows you, it's perhaps his anticipation more than anything else that makes him the player that he is. And mm-hmm. Robbie Henshaw simply didn't have that ability to anticipate. It's difficult because England were varying kicks and making sure that they put pressure on and It wasn't just high kicks, which incidentally, the first one that went up, he missed anyway. But there was the low kicks as well. With Keith Earls off <clears throat> after half time, Um, it made it much, much more difficult, I think, for Robbie Hanchog, because Earls is meant to be quite useful at covering backfield. There didn't seem to be very much. He seemed to be at times running around there by himself, for whatever reason. I assume Andy Farrell, (coughs) we all know, his defensive structure is high. Um, But they, they, unlike Ireland, who failed actually to manage this with Elliot, Elliot Daly, who's not a particularly great defensive fullback either, and that was another... that england managed to do somehow rather they prevented him from being exposed but they had uh they seemed to have robbie on a piece of string at 1.2 he was caught in one corner i think it was on his wrong foot and yeah he had to kick with his left foot and it got absolutely nowhere rob carney is left footed but he can also manage i think to kick with his right foot which is another great advantage now there's a great clamor we've got to have rob back we've got to have rob back i'm not so sure that you know that's necessarily going to happen here because you might want to let him have another go, um, Henshaw, because clearly that is an issue. It's an issue mm-hmm. position moving forward. Rob Carney may not and has lots of fitness issues mm-hmm. and may not be available potentially come the autumn. So what are the options? And that's, I assume, what was being looked at here. And yeah. I would be don't know be surprised if, if, if Joe abandons it immediately, mm-hmm. because Robbie Henshaw may well be a solution, uh, as we've already alluded to, especially without the likes of Simon Zebo likely to come in, who would have been a perfect fit maybe at 15, though some people think he's iffy enough defensively. So um, no, the experiment most definitely did not work under those circumstances, but I would have a funny feeling that they would probably potentially persist because if they, what are they gonna do at 15 then? They're gonna put Jordan Armour in there or Will Addison? Neither of whom, well, not greatly experienced at this level Neither was Henshaw at fullback, naturally enough, but he's a very experienced player. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I have a funny feeling that Schmidt may want to see Robbie Henshaw go again yeah. in a different, slightly different environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I suppose it
1: would be be hard <coughs> to judge him on a day that was um, it wasn't the worst performance of, of, of Joe yeah, Schmidt's reign. It apparently. wasn't
2: necessarily his fault. Yeah, Robbie Henshaw that went wrong.
1: Um, you mentioned him there... Um, <coughs> Chris too, not Chris too, he's the asker of the question. Uh, Should Will Allison have started on on Saturday at fifteen?
0: I think you'll get the answer to that with as Michael sort of alluded to, there the team selection for this week. Like in the Chris Henry column running in today's paper, Chris makes the point that if Robbie Henshaw were to play four or five games at fullback, then I don't think there's any doubt that he would be able to adjust to that,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think it's important to note that we are talking about being Ireland's backup fullback because I think Rob Carney, if he's fit, still starts. Yeah, um, you're talking about somebody who's been Ireland's best mm-hmm. fullback for a decade, no matter what. Uh, he's not always the most popular player with fans, but at the end of the day, that's what you're talking about. Somebody who's been the best at his position for this country in ten years, but if we see um, the Henshaw experiment abandoned and I'd be like Michael I don't necessarily think that's what's going to happen Mm -hmm. then it's an admission that somebody else should have started Will Addison Mm -hmm. presumably assuming that it's not going to be Simon Zebo, who is probably in a lot of people's eyes Ireland's second best 15 but I would have a tendency to agree with what Chris Henry wrote today that if there is a way of getting Henshaw games at fullback he will go into the World Cup as the backup Okay. because bearing in mind that you've got 31 players to choose from at a World Cup it's not like a Six Nations where you can have a squad of 40 so you need that positional yeah. versatility especially in your backs and especially when Bundyaki only plays 12
1: mm, that's an interesting point uh, you mentioned Chris Henry's column great column every Tuesday Belfast Telegraph also online by the paper Um He said today uh, that he raised the point about Simon Zebu, who you both mentioned. Should the IRFU relax this policy a little bit to give Simon Zebu the the option of coming in or the, the chance to earn his place? That's what Chris Henry said in today's column, that in his view, that should be done. What do you think, Michael?
2: I don't think there's any chance of the policy being relaxed, and I don't think it would actually work either. Um the Johnny Sexton experiment when he was with Rassing didn't really work. Sexton said himself that he felt exhausted. and um, All the travel that was needing to be done backwards and forwards, Paris, Dublin, Paris, Dublin, wherever. Um, he felt that it, it didn't actually do him any good whatsoever. And rest assured the RFU can always hold that up and say, there we are, that's why we don't do it. We did use him and we perhaps shouldn't have done that. So we had to get him back, which is exactly what they did. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think it is necessarily going to, to work, even if they brought him in. It looks like a, a ready-made solution, but they made it very clear, uh, um, as far as they're concerned, you leave the country, you don't play for the team, so they just relax it. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me likely that it's going to happen, mm-hmm. or as I said before, likely that it would work. They've done it with players in the past, sp- specific players, Jordan Murphy, for instance, being another example, Simon Easterby, and Tommy Bowe as well when he went to the Ospreys. But it seems to me that their attitude and outlook on this has hardened uh, in recent times, and I don't think and don't see them rowing back now. Certainly not. We've got what Joe Schmidt about to finish up in the autumn. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to change it now, Uh, and if there's any more change in the overall structure within Ireland... Like, you know, if David Nusafura, for instance, is there or isn't there come the autumn, he's not going to change it now either. I think if they're going to change that policy, they change it with a completely new broom. Mm-hmm. And they make that very clear perhaps after the World Cup. I don't see it happening any time now prior to the World Cup. And as I said, to also reiterate, if they were to do it, the amount of games that probably Simon Zeebo might have to play in France and with being pulled back to Ireland probably wouldn't necessarily be um, a long term runner. Mm-hmm. It's a long term,
0: short short term weighing up because if you were to relax this policy completely then what you will see is french clubs and english clubs coming in for irish players yeah because at the minute certainly with an awful lot of players french clubs feel like irish internationals are willing to lead them on to a certain point to secure a better deal from the IRFU, but that they're not going to leave ireland so if it becomes a more realistic prospect mm-hmm. that Irish players are gonna go play in the top 14, then you're going to have to probably pay X amount of euros extra on each of your top-line contracts mm-hmm. the next time you go to renew them. And that costs a lot of money and is probably, probably going to end up being damaging long-term to the IRFU. But the short-term benefits of, if it's an emergency, did Saturday? Did last Saturday count as an emergency without a fullback? And um, Joe Schmidt obviously said it doesn't because he went with the handshower option when probably the most people Simon, if Simon Zibo had have been playing for Munster, he would have played on Saturday.
1: Yeah.
0: The other issue <laughs> of I don't think Donica Ryan's fit at the minute, but he's the other name that people aren't talking about at the minute. Like if you think back to Argentina, like in the autumn the player who improved his case most in our from that Argentina test was Devon Toner who didn't start it and then went on to start the All Blacks sometimes you're better off not playing <laughs> and this was one of those games so everybody that didn't play whether that be Rob Carney whether that be Simon Zeebo, um, whether that be Ian Henderson or whomever comes away looking like they're actually ending the week in credit even mm-hmm. though they haven't done yeah. anything they just haven't been involved in it but you have to look at that in a, it obviously doesn't help that Simon Zebo was very visible this week through um, his what, Six Nations ambassador for Paddy Power. So you're seeing a lot of interviews. You're seeing him liking tweets calling for his recall to mm. the national squad. So he's in people's minds yeah. and he's not there. He's the cause celeb, if you like. But the other thing to remember is Joe Schmidt and Simon Zebo looks like they had an uneasy relationship. So it's not so much guaranteed but if Ireland don't have a fullback for the World Cup or haven't fixed the fullback option for the World Cup it's going to be very difficult to make the case to fans that um, the long term benefits outweigh the short term benefits of having a better squad for a World Cup because it's a
1: World Cup and it's
0: Ireland's best ever chance to win a World Cup
1: yeah uh, let's talk a little bit then about the, the Ulster players. Obviously, um, the main name, despite spending less than five minutes on the pitch, John Cooney. Nice to see him get uh, a few more. It would have been nice to see him get a few more. But he marked it with a try, which uh, I think on, on another otherwise disappointing day, everyone was, was fairly delighted with around Ulster. Yeah,
0: it's another difficult... Well, it's a day that he'll look back on fondly, but in the wider picture, I think it's probably another difficult day for John Cooney because... We've seen this with every Irish backup nine to Murray, but maybe not to this dramatic effect. Where even when it's not working with Conor Murray, he doesn't get taken off. So on a day when Ireland's halfbacks weren't performing well, Carberry still came on at fullback, and John Cooney still came on with four minutes to go. So like the backup to Conor Murray in an Ireland squad is a pretty thankless, uh, a thankless task, really. But no, whenever he came on, he did well, and it was nice for him, obviously, to finally get that Six Nations chance. Nice for him to get the try, nice to have all his family there. But obviously, I think he would have, in the long term, he would have been looking to get more minutes, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, The other Ulster player of note, Michael, um, Jacob Stockdale made... um, would you call it an error for that that England try? I mean, I know there has been the odd question over his uh, defensive work in the past, but is any criticism over um, his failure to gather that ball a little bit bit harsh, given that the bounce really did him?
2: Um, yeah, the bounce was difficult, and he only got one hand to it. But unfortunately, uh, he's got to carry the can for that. That was a that was a a, a gifted try, um, and he shouldn't have have let that one go. Whether he was aware. I think it was jack noble was very close to him i'm not sure but it it was a at that level you don't you can't you cannot give scores that way no matter what you know the points he got a hand to it that should have been enough for him to secure it it was in a very dangerous position in his own goal area no unfortunately he he will have to carry the can for that it was interesting because i mean i did notice when ulster played the tigers they kept kicking especially i think towards his area so whether or not there's been someone identified to thought, well, maybe he's not just so good when he turns, I don't know. The last, um, it was um, uh, George Ford was doing that. It was on the bench, I think, mostly. Um, it didn't really work at the Tigers, but it was interesting. They kept persisting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, with this, these kicks into backfield. Um, now, whether or not uh, they thought that this was worth pursuing when the England guys got together or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm but why it certainly it certainly worked for them. A low, difficult kick to deal with. Now, in fairness, it is a difficult kick, but at that level, you secure it. Uh, yeah. You just have to secure it. Now, some said it was a bit casual, because, but I think the bounce was difficult. Mm-hmm. But no one else can, unfortunately, carry the can for that. And that that, 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 was a, that, was a score that was gifted to England. Pure and simple.
1: Probably I was thinking just at, at full time, whenever he looked like he was going to get in a fight with one of the England players. I can't remember who it was. It, sort of, uh, it was just at full time, but it sort of... Came to my mind that that's probably his first disappointment in a, in an Ireland shirt like that. It's, uh, it's yeah. probably something he hasn't had it, it, to had it, to deal with before. Most high of mistake, yeah. yeah, without
2: doubt. But I mean, I, I he was like, having a terrible, terrible day anyway because he couldn't get anything going, but he wasn't alone.
1: No, no, no. I think
0: no. like when you go back to that um, Teddy Thomas try in the opener to the Six Nations last year that was his most high-profile role in something that went wrong, basically. I'm not saying, again, he was not the only one to blame, even in that specific instance. But that was on a day when Johnny Sexton knocked over an 83rd-minute 41-phase drop goal. So it gets lost in the shuffle a Mm -hmm. bit, and then we saw what he did afterwards. But when you're talking about putting those kicks through and behind, because we had talked about this before, um, just after that Leicester game and then talking to Ian Humphries about what we had spoken about and it was another one of those um moments of insight into what this podcast would be like if people who knew what they were talking about were here where he was,
1: uh, Michael's here, Michael's sorry. here. Sorry. That's, that's, the, that's why we brought Michael in <laughs> um,
0: where sort of saying that the, the reason to not kick to Jacob Stockdale is because you're scared what he's going to do when he gets the ball going the other way and that was why against Leicester you would have seen um, probably trying to put the ball in his area but on the ground so that he can't counter-attack off it and like England did that again well because it was as Michael said before there were a lot of kicks along the ground and stuff like that I mean the bounce didn't go for him a lot of bounces have gone for him in his career all the so, magic so far for yeah. to the, to and it's like it's all well and good do you know what I mean for me to sit here or sat um, three tiers in the Aviva above him and be like in that split second would it have been better for you to not go for the ball take the contact and get a penalty for being tackled before you got to the ball would it have been better to go with two hands dive on it rather than try and play it around the corner you know in that sort of moment he's tried to do something that hasn't Mm -hmm. we saw the same with Hugo he is another good winger well admittedly he was playing fullback but um, another good back three player where sometimes these things they don't come off and (coughs) again like Michael said there were other players you know could we have seen somebody else covering in behind to help him? We saw Peter O'Mahony against the All Blacks come from nowhere to claim that poke three from, I think it was Bowdoin Barrett at the time. And you saw him sort of in the frame, but not reading the play in the same way that he had done for that um, for that moment in the All Blacks that everybody remembers. So it's another one of those, collectively, it's just... It was a a bad moment for a back three that was playing with a fair amount more confusion than we normally see. I'm sure Joe Schmidt, though, wouldn't be very sympathetic all
1: the same. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's move on from from that bad moment to hopefully a a better one next weekend. Um, The Ireland squad has uh, been, um, well, I'll not say decimated because we don't know yet, but CJ Stander, uh, we know, is definitely out for this game, uh, and probably the one after that as well. Um, As well as that, the Ireland injury update, I said that Devon Turner, Keith Earls, and Gary Ringrose are all doubts for this week. Uh, We don't know any more on on those yet. No, as
0: we record, I think they're training now, so Mm -hmm. by the time you listen to this, you'll know more. But but we can't offer you much. Just (laughs) just a point, CJ
2: Stander, it was said that obviously he um, picked up his... Is it fractured cheekbone? And I saw, saw him yeah. um, at a point in the game long before he came off. Yeah. What on earth was he doing staying on the pitch <laughs> when he was in a condition like that? And why did nobody notice? Yeah. Well, see, he didn't tell anybody, yeah. which is which is
0: um, very the way that Ireland answered uh, why he was someone who had to stand the pitch for that long. I was like, well, nobody knew because he didn't say yeah. anything about it. Yeah. Um, but we saw the same thing with... Keith Earls, or I think Keith Earls could have gone off a lot earlier mm. because you're looking at it and um, I don't know, did, did Sean O'Brien have an R, an R in him? Maybe um, I thought Sean yeah. O'Brien could have come on a lot earlier regardless of exactly. the injury
2: but the point is that if you have an injury like that uh, you cannot really play properly no. and you mm. you know if nobody spots it you have to at least yeah. get somebody to look at it because you saw when he came off as well, the size of his cheek, and the eye was almost closed I think at one point, and therefore he, for however long, <clears throat> and it was never made abundantly clear when he, but it said that most of the 61, 62 minutes he was only played through that, um, so, you're just never going to be able to perform and at that level, not yeah. chaps. So, oh, that's, uh, not,
1: that's not I'd have 999 dialed 999 really quick I'd be, I'd be I'd up for it, it forever <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, I mean <laughs> adrenaline
2: adrenaline's a great thing but uh, and sometimes it can get you through things I mean Paul O'Connell played on I think in the Lions in, uh, in Australia briefly with was it a broken arm I think yeah briefly yeah, uh, albeit briefly but if you have an injury of that nature you are not going to be able to perform and you're not yeah. doing the team any favours by staying on and hoping that perhaps yeah. the pain goes away yeah. you have to get off and I, I I that didn't do them any good because in effect they were almost down a back rower. Mm-hmm. I think and, like whenever you look at the stat sheet and everyone's
0: marvelling at how many tackles CJ Stander was able to make mm-hmm. with a broken face mm-hmm. but the back row and I, like a couple of people said oh the back row put in a lot of work for me the back row were completely outplayed yeah. like you didn't have the abrasiveness of Dan Levy you didn't have I think a single turnover off the deck mm. and Ireland's ball was slowed throughout so while yes everyone in the back row was able to make 15-20 tackles it, they weren't effective um, as a unit no.
1: what uh, do you see then as the big big changes this weekend the team wise obviously there could be changes in the, the back line centre uh, at lock again what do you see as the being the, the big changes to the side
0: it's one of those where I think you could change any number of things to try and freshen it up without going too far and throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> but with that amount of injuries, your hand is almost forced because you're looking at maybe having to make three changes, four changes because of injury. Like if Devon Turner's out, right, then there's a huge question because then you're missing three of your four first mm-hmm. choice locks. We saw Quinn Rui come onto the bench having leapfrogged Ulton Delan since the squad was named. Now we've seen Billy Holland come in to the squad in addition to that.
1: Yes, should have mentioned that. He was called up last night. Yeah.
0: Um, Now that's somebody who's had two really, really good cameos recently for Munster in the Champions Cup. But again, I mean, you're talking about coming off the bench and and talking about a 33-year-old who's got one cap before. Mm -hmm. So you would expect... I suppose, Quinn Rue to start, given that he's a tight headlock and given that he has more line-out calling experience than Dylan Holland obviously can call a line-out as well. Do you then have DeLan on the bench, which gives you, I suppose, a bit more physicality of, and what you would want from, if you are more akin to what you would have if you had Henderson or Byrne on the bench to come on?
2: You need something like that because you know the bench, obviously. Yes, Courtney Laws, Nathan yeah. Hughes. Even though Hughes ended up having to play lock, these guys made a huge difference. Ireland didn't really have that, apart from I suppose you could say Sean O'Brien, and of course Sean Cronin did his bit. But Sean Cronin is a guy who suits games when they're broken up, and though he created John Cooney's try, it was largely irrelevant at that at that stage. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's a big factor too. You've got to think about the bench and what they can bring to the game, the impact that they can make. England had and you saw what they did. I mm. didn't
1: really You both said earlier that you could see Robbie <coughs> Henshaw staying at, at, at fullback. Would Guy Ringrose's potential omission change that in any way? Absolutely,
0: because I think if Ringrose is out... Now, Ringrose seemed to be the injury that they had the least concern over at yeah. the time, because he wasn't even mentioned originally. Despite having gone off, he wasn't mentioned by Joe Schmidt. Now, that can be an oversight, because you're asking somebody to process an awful lot of information in... The, 10 15 minutes yeah. since the match is finished but he, like he he wasn't mentioned as being injured and then um was obviously on the injury report yesterday but if he if he is out then and he thinks that Rob Carney has shaken off sufficiently the rust that um Schmidt believed that he had shown in the Leinster vs Scarlets game then i think it changes everything because then you're talking about wanting to get Henshaw more minutes but That almost gives you a reason to push Henshaw back into the midfield, possibly play Carberry at fullback. possibly play Addison at full-back, but you do also have the option of Chris Farrell to play 13, which shouldn't be discounted either. No, I
2: I don't think that should be as I was actually going to say, because I think um, to abandon the Henshaw experiment now, it doesn't look good, it doesn't play well, but you could have Chris Farrell in the midfield Mm -hmm. and keep Robbie Henshaw at full-back. But, as Jonathan explained, there are a number of options there. And if Rob Carney's right, well then... But even if you do put him in, you're sort of admitting that the mm. Henshaw experiment was wrong. And it is a very important thing to have that back up there. Um, I could see them keeping Henshaw full-back and possibly bringing in Chris Farrell. Mm. I could say Farrell played extremely well. I mean, he's had terrible trouble with injury. But he's a very, very, very skillful player. And I think him and Aki, I'm not sure if they've actually played together or not.
0: I, I think they maybe remember, played they?
2: against Fiji, possibly. Yeah, which is hard to tell because uh, they're both essentially, you know, they're both essentially powerful players. But actually, Farrell's got a great skill, a very high skill level as well. And
0: he's been in good form for yeah. us. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Chris Farrell is somebody that if he were to come into the team, mm-hmm. he certainly earned it. But...
2: It's just, it really does come down to the what yeah, you do with Henshaw. I know. Yeah. Of course, Chris Farrell was a spare man as well, yeah. so he would have been brought onto the bench had there been any issues, presumably. on yeah. the bench. So he is around, and he's very much in mm. Schmidt's uh, thoughts, the think.
1: Just before we, we leave the Six Nations, then, <laughs> um, I should have thrown this in earlier, but I didn't, so here we are. Uh, Donald's question this week uh, was, I think, an interesting one. Um, he points out that last year, uh, Ireland's Six Nations Grand Slam was won by fine margins, references the the scraped win in Paris and the intercept against Wales that flattered the scoreboard. Um, He asked, did Ireland get too far ahead of themselves last year and are England now falling into that same trap? And uh, he references a forward pass in the build-up to Slade's first try, I think that was, and the fumble by Stockdale. So, do you think... um, there's a, a bit of excitement comes on to Ireland last year and now England after after these big wins. It's
0: sort of like as we said at the start like I don't think that there'll be many in the Ireland squad that built in or bought into the hype around them as much as it is strange that they continually have these slow starts to windows and especially Six Nations going back to basically all of Joe Schmidt's Six Nations campaigns even the games that they won they started slowly and, but I think probably you're probably only really talking about like heavyweight boxing where people draw more conclusions from one event, and it's because you see these teams play so infrequently, especially against fellow top eight teams in the world. That when something when they play each other, it's seen as so definitive. So, England beat Ireland. Ireland having been seen as the biggest challenges to New Zealand for the World Cup. And now, even in the New Zealand media, they're talking about England again as the challenger of the World Cup. And you talk about those fine margins and how the game could have swung on. I'm not sure that it would swing on any of those points because England were just far superior. I think they would have found another way to win. But it's because of the dearth of Test Rugby between teams like this ahead of a World Cup that you get that people being so definitive about it. But I think that the players would understand that not as much has changed as maybe uh, the betting odds have ahead of the World Cup.
1: What about Ireland's opponents then? Um, Scotland beat Italy 33-20 on Saturday. What uh, did we we learn from that that Ireland should be wary of?
2: It was... um the scoreline again shouldn't you shouldn't read too much into that because the game was done and dusted. Italy then managed to score. I think it was three tries in about the last ten minutes. When Scotland had a man off the park, um, what I was impressed with was the way Scotland had brought um, some of their some of their plays It brought people like well, obviously um, Kinghorn had got hat trick, but also uh, Tommy Seymour into play, coming off their wings and popping up at various angles, tearing through Italy. Very hard to judge with Italy, as you know, they did defend quite well, but you know. It's Italy so it's, it's a difficult one to really say but obviously the key man and I mean it's interesting Owen Farrell was, was such a dominant figure for England mm-hmm. among several others but Finn Russell is the man who makes Scotland tick and if he is allowed the time and space that he was given against the Italians then he'll have a very very Pleasant afternoon. I, do, I can't see that happening against Ireland. Mm-hmm. I you'd like to think that a player of Johnny Sexton's quality will bounce back and and hopefully dominate the game. But if they allow Finn Russell to play his box of tricks and he can do various things, he's uh, he was he was someone who's kicks through as well. They're worrying things. Someone his kicks through, <laughs> were uh, caused the Italians an awful lot of trouble. They've <laughs> got to make sure that Finn Russell can't play. Um, you'd like to think that really from that point. Um, if they can do that then they will get on top. Um, yeah. he is he, he is uh, the ringleader.
1: If uh, if Finn Russell does have a match winning performance, you can expect Simon Zebu's name to pop up a lot more next week.
0: Well that's a hundred percent it. Like that's yeah. that's the narrative of this week. If Ireland have problems at fullback and Scotland win a game where their captain and best player both play in France. But the interesting thing for me with Scotland is and Michael touched on it there like their good players are very very good so you have Finn Russell you have Stuart Hogg you have Blair Kinghorn you have Greg Laidlaw and those guys really run amok against Italy for the first 70 minutes Sam Johnson was another player I thought was very very good on debut but I just don't think that they have as many good players Mm -hmm. but and this is where this comes in they're capable of beating good sides at home their depth maybe gets exposed when they go away over the summer um, when you, you're missing a lot more players through injury. But they're missing some key players already in the shape of Hamish Watson and John Barclay from their back row. WP nails now out as well. And it's when they start to lose those key men that you see Scotland have the results that make people think that the Gregor Townsend project isn't progressing at the pace that we expected but at Murrayfield they're, they're a serious proposition
2: I think they might have Johnny Grey coming back which yeah, would be yeah. a very big bonus to them. Mm-hmm. but losing WP now is, is a big blow mm. but certainly if, if you allow them to play they will tear you apart <laughs> yeah. they will they do have I mean Stuart Hogg. you saw him there on Saturday um, you could score from anywhere mm. if you give him the space
1: just like love Scotland will tear us apart again mm. <laughs> indeed Um the women's Six Nations, of course, got underway as well. Uh, on what was it, Friday, Friday evening? Night. We had Claire McLaughlin in last week. If anybody hasn't listened to that, go back and listen to our interview with Claire McLaughlin. Um, she was very nice and spoke very well about but women's rugby in general, not just the Six Nations. Um, but her and her Ireland side had a tough opening day, uh, beaten fifty-one-seven by the professional players of England. Um, you watched that one, John.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you touched on it there. Like, the professional players of England, it's two teams working with completely different resources. We talked about it a wee bit with Claire last week about just the familiar names that you don't have anymore who have retired over the last couple of years, and it's a very inex- relatively inexperienced Ireland team. They did okay for the first of the two minutes. Things are pretty encouraging. And then, just off turnover ball, England scored their try, and... From there, it really was trouble. Like There were encouraging periods for Ireland where they got themselves into good positions. They just couldn't take their chances, whereas England were ruthless, and that's just the difference in quality. But just, just a word for Claire Malloy, who was in a defeat of that margin, really put in a very, very strong performance as somebody who looked like they could have been... didn't look out of place... Um, mm. playing against a team like England and obviously Catherine Dane as well getting on mm. um, f- of Ennis Gillen getting on for a debut as well probably in similar to Cooney coming on in yeah. situations at Scrum Half that maybe ideally you don't want to be but um, it's good to see her get her first cap as well.
1: Absolutely do you know when their their game is this week?
0: They're playing Friday night in Scottsdale oh, on Sky Sports again
1: if anybody wants to what no, isn't No. Maybe it? that was just because it was England. That no, was because really? it was England, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Depending depending on, on where you, <laughs>
0: disgusting. you may be able to watch the Under these depending on where you live. But.
1: <laughs> um, back to Ulster then, and uh, since last week's podcast, Sam Carter, who we did discuss uh, as an imminent signing, has now been confirmed. Um, Michael, good good recruit this one.
2: Very good recruit. Um, very good recruit. Um, it's no secret that Ulster need to beef up their front five. They still need probably a quality, a really quality signing, perhaps a loosehead prop. Mm-hmm. But to get him on board um, is a very positive sign, and uh, you, I think everyone can be very encouraged that he will bring uh, something very considerable uh, to the party. And you know, and they do need a harder edge. There's no doubt about that. And hopefully, he will bring that. Um, I think it's a very good signing, and. Um, I think everyone can be pretty optimistic that um, if he stays fit, that he'll make a very valuable contribution.
1: The the other signing that hasn't been confirmed yet, but will be confirmed um, at some stage, uh, Matt Faddis. Martin McGowan asks what status he will be when he signs IQ and IQ project player. Do we know? Well, I think
0: we've probably seen the death of project players, especially ones that are 27, so... <laughs> He's not going to be considered a project player because he's not going to play for Ireland um, ever because you, you have to wait five years now. So I think James Lowe is probably the last person that we're going to see come in and play for Ireland through that route. But the way that they are, if you're looking at these things now, I don't think... Before, it used to matter a great deal because you were allowed X amount of... Um, NIQs and X amount of project players but that's not really the way that we see it anymore you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, Jameson Gibson Park and Lou who mentioned Adelaine so that, you know, that's two project players and they probably only have Scott Tamani as an NIQ but it's more about what the you perceive in value for money now and what they perceive as value for money certainly looks to me to be imports who are not going to play international rugby
1: Ran Cohen would like to remind you that if Phallus isn't announced now, there's going to be a rat. So yeah. after your stories, so just brace yourself. Not a No Deal
0: Brexit. <laughs> yeah, that's it between that. <laughs> well, <laughs> if either happens, the Queen's yeah, go up the teams or something. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like
1: oh, they're making plans to move the Queen if Matt Phallus doesn't sign for Holster. I don't know.
0: Like I think we did pretty well in our other stories last week, so. We should have some But he uh, is going to sign it. We should have some benefit of the doubt in people's down, right?
1: Um just basically every other question this week is about new Ulster signings uh, and where they need to strengthen a loose head, basically, the answer <laughs> the answer to that one. I think they need to sign a loose head.
0: We all can see that because they only have two at the minute and in recent a number of recent games you've seen the starter have to go eighty minutes. Mm. Um but and we mentioned this last week that you don't really know how much you have to strengthen with and where you need to strengthen until you know what Marcel can see as doing.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, everything and would we seem don't to get hinge it. on that. We don't know really what's going yeah. on there. But everything would seem to hinge on that. If he does go, that's a that's a loss. Um, mm-hmm. Again, if he could stay fit, he's made a very, very um, high-profile contribution while he's been able to, to play.
1: Let's move on then to the, the club scene. Michael, you were at the launch, or not the launch, the press day yes. yesterday for the Ulster Senior Cup final, yes. which is a repeat of last year's um, defending champion City of Armagh coming up against Balamina, who will be, be out for revenge.
2: Very much. Uh, that hurt Balamina a lot last year. Um, that they lost that game. They have a, well, Armagh didn't really have any Senior Cup pedigree. That was their first ever final, and they won it. So it was a, a tremendous achievement for the club that have made enormous progress over the last few years and are to be commended for that. But that hurt Palomino a lot. They have a cup pedigree. I think they've won it 14 times. Um, not the most, but it's it's getting up there. Uh, to them, you know, a senior cup final was not quite a guarantee because I think the previous final they'd also actually lost to Balna Hinch. But they would normally have got to finals and quite often lifted the silverware. I think they last lifted it in season 2012-13. I think they beat Rainey quite comprehensively. So they've had a bit of a follow period and uh, just speaking to them, uh, that very much stuck in their crawl last year. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, they didn't get their hands on it. They're also struggling in the AIL, so this could also be seen as a springboard for them to try and revive their fortunes, their mm-hmm. bottom of 1B at the moment, which is automatic relegation mm-hmm. um, to division 2A. Uh, though the, the league is extremely tight so yeah. this would be seen as a very useful springboard to them Armagh come into it reasonable form in the all Ireland League very confident um, probably more potentially more of a settled side as well uh, they liked what they saw last year they got a taste of something they'd never had before and uh, they're well up for it. it it could actually weather permitting be quite a good game mm-hmm. um, and hopefully uh, hopefully it will and it'll not be the usual possibly freezing cold night in Ravenhill. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it could be a very good game. I'd say both sides have very, very compelling reasons to go Mm -hmm. for it. And As you said, a repeat of last year, which is interesting as well. We'll see how uh, that one pans out. Favourites would have to be Armagh, though.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, uh, if we get another rendition of Boys from the County Armagh from the pitch, then I'm all for that. Um... In the Schools Cup then, of course, the the top seeds enter on Saturday. Uh, The draw is on the website and we'll have coverage of the the next round draw, which uh, we understand is taking place on Saturday rather than Monday this week. Uh, The top tie on that one, Sullivan, um, playing their local rivals and defending champions Campbell. Should be a good game. Are you going to the game? I will be in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, of course. It would be difficult. It
0: would, it would be. From Scotland. Taking a Edinburgh schools cup game or something. Yeah, you're going to Sullivan,
2: Michael? Yes. Um, I will be there. I've seen them play each other a number of times over the years. Uh, last few years now, I think, uh, as a real Campbell, have always had the upper hand. Um, this year, I'm hearing that Sullivan actually fancy themselves again. They, they mm-hmm. might uh, get a wee bit of a run going here, potentially. They, they think they're quite strong. They've got a few representative players in the side as well. I think we're quite... Very decent players. Campbell, um, not so much is known about them this year, I think. They're okay, but uh, <clears throat> excuse me, nowhere near as strong as probably last year. But yeah. it'll be an interesting one. It's not as clear-cut as it might appear to be um, yeah. on paper, so it could be really quite a contest. Um, Just uh, don't call it a Belfast Derby, and you're. Oh no, no, uh, you mustn't call it a Belfast Derby <laughs> because, because our, you see, they're uh, not. no, 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 no. Um, I may have already done this, actually.
0: Anyways, but no, it okay. was uh, our <clears throat> the, the podcast favorite commentator and a friend of the show, Mar mm-hmm. Robson, was getting on to uh, Adam for calling it a Belfast Derby right. on uh, yeah on Twitter because obviously it's uh, Hollywood Belfast Derby. It is yeah. a sort of derby, but they're
2: neighbours; they're, they're very close yeah. together. Uh, Methody come in as well there at Dalriada. They seem to be being spoken about as everybody's favourites. Inst host uh, Royal School, Dungannon. And an interesting one, uh, Royal School Armagh are at home to Bangor Grammar. Royal School Armagh were uh, last year's beaten finalists. And uh, Bangor Grammar have uh, Aaron Sexton in their ranks, who I saw playing last week. Uh, Not last week, but the previous round against Regent. So that could be very interesting to see how that one goes. Absolutely.
1: Very good. Right, well... uh, Stay tuned to the website for coverage of that and also the Sunday Life and Belfast Telegraph newspaper where you'll have um, expert uh, opinion and analysis from Michael Sadler and John Bradley and Adam Kennan. Not
0: from not for me, no, no. no. Um, you're, you're in Edinburgh, okay. but, um, Well, I just mean in general, yeah. in the rugby pages. Oh, of course, just, yeah. Just, in mm-hmm. g- just speaking general. We, uh, we've got to answer the. Um, Welsh Sportage Club question about the star in the jersey oh yeah we did Yeah, I am um, well, all, all in favour of anything that draws attention to Ulster winning the European Cup yeah.
1: <laughs> for anybody who of doesn't course. know what we're talking about well you probably all have worked it out but uh, the URSC I uh, do no. know what is it? Something. Like, anyway, it doesn't matter what their initials are. South Wales. They asked, ERS, yeah, it doesn't matter. They had asked. Say it doesn't uh, matter. Doesn't <laughs> it? Does <don't> matter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, okay. They had asked should Ulster or why Ulster had haven't put a star on their European jersey yet to reflect, of course, the nineteen ninety nine European Cup win, of which mm. there is an interesting book out at the minute uh, by mm. one Jonathan Bradley. Oh yeah.
0: Mm. Just Here in case. Yeah. Just in case I haven't plugged it to anybody yet. <laughs> Might have been just a
2: monstrous star. I don't think
0: they do, do they? I don't believe the monster do. No, Brave so. don't, but Brave have a star in their crest anyway. Oh, so you were saying
1: that there is a star on monster shirt. Sure. There is like a star what?
0: on the underside, or sorry, the one last year had a star on the underside of the arm, I believe. Right. Um, not really showing it off, is it? Well, you know. But and that, know. that was it? And that was meant to
2: signify...
0: I believe so, yeah. Oh. Now, obviously, like... Leinster and Toulouse have Mm. the four, and Saracens, Mm. I believe, have theirs marked. Leicester don't breathe, don't bath, do. So some teams do, some teams don't. But if you really need to mark the 20th anniversary of Ulster European Cup win in any way,
1: visit your local bookshop. Absolutely. Mm. It's right. I bought one for my father-in-law. He told me over now he gave it away. Oh, didn't read it, <laughs> give it away. away. When <laughs> young, he said he'd he it to his mate who's going on holidays.
0: Yeah, I was told that it, um, through the same process of somebody giving it away, reading it, then giving it away, reading it and giving it away, the one I ended up in Rory McElroy's hands.
1: Really?
0: No. I'm not saying that he's read it, Well, but it was given to. So I don't. I take no offence to people reading the book and then giving it away. Funny, I thought you were going to say get an iron-on star. <laughs> <laughs> like the sort of, of dance good, cup, yeah. like the dance <laughs> bank, What uh, you should do is get an iron-on star and put it on your,
1: your yeah. sports jersey. Anyway. <laughs> that's the wisdom we brought you in here for, my at <laughs> Great ideas like this. So that's pretty much us for this week. Join us again next week for more Six Nations chat and a look ahead to all match against... Ospreys, is that right? In Bridge End. In Bridge End.
2: Brewery Field, lovely.
1: From John uh, from John Broad. Thank you very much. And Michael Sadler. Thank you. And me, Hannah, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> thank you. thank you there. It was very enthusiastic, Michael. It's really <laughs> <laughs> you? All right. <laughs>